I think that it's sticking around. You said wrong, Ben. You think it's out? No, I said groan. Groan. <laughs> oh, groan. Yeah, people are groaning. Yeah, definitely. People groan around figuration. People groan around talking about Times Square, but neither of them are going anywhere anytime soon. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest stories down to earth. So this week, I'm joined by our art critic and co-host of The Art Angle, Ben Davis. Hey, Ben. Hello, Kate. And by our gossip columnist and writer behind the column, Wet Paint, Annie Armstrong. Hey, Annie. Hi, Kate. So, yes, I think between the two of you, I'm in good company today to try to tease out some of the incoming and outgoing trends this year. We will see how we do. This is an experiment of sorts. As many of you guys that will be listening know, well, at the end of each year, people tend to turn to Instagram and TikTok and share these micro forecasts and share their in and out lists for the years to come. And though this is actually a pretty old phenomenon, we found out it started by the Washington Post in the 1970s, it is a huge social media annual ritual, equally as loathed as it is loved. And there's very little consensus on anything is the big takeaway. And I would say that that's very true this year, probably. So yeah, we're going to dive into this and do our own version and see how it goes. And hopefully it will be entertaining and have a little bit of soothsaying involved in it. So we're going to prognosticate a bit and use the in and out format to discuss some of the big events and trends that we noticed and covered on Artnet News this year. And disclaimer, please don't take all of this too seriously. This is meant to be fun and cheeky and also recap some of the movers and shakers of the year. So let's see how we do. In preparing for this episode, I was thinking about something that I noticed this year, which was that JOMO, Joy of Missing Out, or as it was later called in 2023, ROMO, is very much out and burnout mode is in. And I thought maybe we could call it BOMO, but I think that's a bit lame. I was feeling this year that the art industry really kicked up again in 2022. It was pretty reasonable to like skip out on things and no one asked too many questions. When you were walking through the fair aisles, you would see a lot of people still giving tours to their collectors on FaceTime. And this year, at least when I was going around to big art events, I noticed that people were really exhausted, but like hyper present on the ground everywhere. It feels very relevant as we're about to close out 2023 and we're all very tired, but is that how you guys felt this year? Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, I definitely agree because this August I wrote a wet paint about how this summer the art world really forgot how to take a vacation. In years past, typically the art world shuts down in the month of August, but I talked to so many different dealers who said that it was nonstop for them from top to bottom all year and they really didn't get a break. So I definitely got that sense of exhaustion and I, I might have even felt it myself. Wait, what does Romo mean again? Relief of missing out. Oh, relief of missing out. I thought it was like the romance of missing out. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's the end of the year. I feel pretty burned out. I think there's something about how, like, you know, everything went online a couple years ago during the quarantine, and then people had to get back to IRL business, but you still had that imprint of, like, everything being online all the time. So people are like working in all the channels at once. That's how it feels to me. Like things are nonstop all the time. You're never offline, but you always have a place to go. So yeah, I'll take it. Burnout mode. Makes sense to me. Great. No arguments. No arguments. There was a lot of excitement to get back after the pandemic kind of chilled out. I'm going to propose my own. What about camo? Can't afford to miss out. I think that that's how a lot of people feel. They've got a gun to their head. They got to go out. 
Yeah, and that actually really relates to the sort of economic pressures that are at play in the art industry. People are really hungry and searching for sales right now and the weakening attention economy as well. I think that'll probably be a theme here in these ins and outs. That's true, yeah. The next one is sort of an aesthetic observation, but I think it connects to the market, which we were just talking about. Figuration is out, but it's also still kind of in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, undecided, but it became really popular, as we all know, especially in 2022, which was maybe like peak figuration. It was the only thing we were seeing at art fairs and in a lot of museum solo shows. And it certainly feels like people have become tired of it. And there's other trends that have emerged. But I think, as you were just talking about this sort of tense economy that people can't afford to like mess around too much. It feels like it's also a bit of a permatrend because people know that it generally sells pretty well as compared to other forms of art. Do you guys agree with that one? I don't know. There's a lot of abstraction out there too. I think there's just a lot of painting. I wrote a piece this year. It was like the painting, painting, painting moment. Everything's painting. I think there was maybe a lot of portraiture as figuration. People got kind of tired of portraiture as the thing. And then it's like, rifling around in the other genres to try and find something else that feels cool. I don't know, Annie, you were just in the fairs. Was figuration in or out? It was very much in. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. It was down the halls of both Nada and Art Basel Miami Beach everywhere. <laughs> just so much painting, like you said. I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. But there is a bit of fatigue, right? Would you say around it as a form? There's cynicism, I think. I think there's cynicism from the people that go to all of the fairs that work in the art industry, but I don't think there is from collectors. I don't think that's slowing down. Can we coin a term for that? Figuration fatigue? Fig fat? Something like that? <laughs> that's <Fig> perfect. <laughs> well, we've got two new terms. You've heard it here first. Yeah. On the art angle. <laughs> so my uh, next one, and I swear I'm going to turn it over to you guys soon. Um, the Anthropocenes feel very much out to me. Mm. And I just made it plural so that I could say that interior scenes are in and make it rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> this one like barely makes any sense. It does once I explain it maybe a bit. One of the big events this year that had started, I believe, the year before was climate activists, you know, throwing food at paint and art and climate activism, which is a topic and is represented in art quite a bit. I wrote about it in 2021, kind of became very literal for people. And it also wasn't really received in a very clear way from the art world, which was a bit surprising. Like people were really not into the climate activists doing the set museums. I'm abstaining from a vote for the purposes of this conversation. But that was a general tone. And then another thing that happened this year that I think is important to bring up on this note is that the Gallery Climate Coalition, which is this group of dealers, auction houses, um, and I believe some artist studios that is trying to encourage greener practices in the art world, they introduced some new measures in place. So they basically want to have active members being celebrated for being active members, and then there's sort of the rest of their members. And I think the sort of liner note of this is that a lot of people signed up to be sort of climate activists, so to speak, by signing up to GCC, but then a lot of people didn't do anything. They just signed up. And so it was seen as a bit of a virtue signal. Part of GCC mm. is that you have to do some actual work and making your gallery greener. So yeah, there was this sort of like sidelining of the climate conversation I noticed. And then at the same time, something that we've talked about on the podcast before was that nature came back, but it came back in the form of these like really innocuous still lifes everywhere. And I don't know if it's fair to connect these things at all, but I wanted to try it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a triangulation. I mean, I feel like just a few years ago, there was just a lot of installations about the earth and environmentalism and nature. And that was part of the moment. It was a political moment. I think about Precious Okoyaman getting the freeze prize in, I think, uh, 2021. That's an artist known for these, like, essentially gardens, you know, and works of reflective poetry about the world we live in. And then uh, now we're back to flowers, paintings of flowers. I, I was looking at the coverage from Miami and we had an article by Shanti Escalante de Mate and she was talking to dealers and one of them said, flowers are a quintessential symbol of tranquility, love, care, support, growth. Plus, regardless of the current political or economic climate, they're a safe and easy sell considering it's been a difficult year for a lot of galleries. So I think, yeah, it seems like pretty clear triangulation. You know, you take all that focus on nature and you put it into decor. Yeah, it's so interesting that you brought up Precious because it seems like there's two different modes of using nature and art. Precious's work has so much to do with like the dystopic parts of the planet. And then also we have, I think, just like a population of people that really want to fall back in love with Earth after it's been really hard to live here for a while. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of the sense I get from <laughs> yeah, yeah. why we just want to behold a beautiful flower. Is that so much to ask these days? <laughs> Yeah. And I was also noticing that like the sentimentalism into that note, Annie, was like quite in, you know, like more sentimental painting and these sort of whimsical art is like a lot more present and, you know, more cold objects um, or very political art seems to have sort of subdued. And I think that you could take it either way, but I think it's also fair that people want to just have some sublime beauty right now and that that can also be okay, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, art it can just be beautiful. I think that's okay. <laughs> Put it on a t-shirt. Art, it can just be beautiful. <laughs> yeah, we can make a new coalition. <laughs> I can get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're inventing all kinds of things today. Um, okay, another thing that I'm going to declare is out is PDFs and in is apps because I noticed this year that a lot of apps were being promoted to me around fairs. Interesting. Yeah, our Bezel Social Club had its first year in June and they were working with Docent, which is an artificial intelligence app um, to sell work at this event that was in Basel in an old warehouse. And when you were walking around, I mean, some dealers were there, but some dealers also weren't there and there was a little QR code and you could see all their offerings and prices and chat with them. And, and I think, you know, People are pretty used to this post-pandemic, so it doesn't feel like too alienating to people. And then also right before our Basel Miami Beach this year, they launched Access with Arcwall. I never say that right. And buyers had to donate on this platform in order to buy works on the platform. And a bunch of big galleries were collaborating with them for this. So maybe fewer email PDFs going around. You think PDFs are out? You think I can uh, give up my Adobe... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> subscription or whatever. No, I mean, sounds good to me. I am not on any of these apps and I do not buy art from PDF. So I don't feel qualified to comment. It's definitely true. I mean, I was talking to so many collectors in Miami this year who were talking about how they feel a little bit like miffed by the fair when everything is still online. Like they don't feel like they have to go or just the things that are actually for sale on the ground at the fair it's less and less because it's all pre-sold. But I guess that's every year. I think that's been around for a long time now. Yeah, it's becoming more and more of a showroom and less of a sales room. Yeah, that's AOMO, anger at missing out or something like that. <laughs> uh, anger at having already missed out. Do these apps make an impact on you? Do you? I mean, I just feel like there's been like an app economy for a while and there are all these attempts at art apps that never really take off. True, but 
Fair Warning is back. Loic Guzer, a name I also always mispronounce. What is that? He has this auction app called Fair Warning, where it sells one piece of art at a time, I think, is the idea. Okay. Like an okay. attempt to slow down the market and kind of make it exciting and see live bidding. I think is the idea. <laughs> it's like the be real of auction apps. Remember that? Yes, app? yes like exactly. Wow. Everybody had to do something at once. So well put. That's exactly what it is. Speaking of collectors at our Basel Baby Beach, I have one that I wanted to bring up, which is that every year art collectors are either wearing Stan Smith's, the sneakers, I mean, or New Balances. This year I saw so many pairs of hookahs on the floor. I think that's like the new sneaker of choice by the art world elite oh yeah you might as well be speaking an alien language as far as i'm concerned <laughs> i barely know what these words mean what kind of sneaker do you wear ben i couldn't tell you they're burgundy <laughs> that's the critic's response the art dealers all wear hokas <laughs> kate i think you said that the artists wear salmons which i think is true mm-hmm. and the critic your eyes are not on your shoes your eyes are on yeah. the art <laughs> Yeah, Hoka. I saw a bunch of those around. I also feel like a lot of dealers are wearing Sambas, but maybe that's already out. That was sort of in at the beginning of this year. Yeah, Sambas, I think those are like old reliable. It's like the steady old mare. You can always trust them. They're going to be there. It's a good shoe. My own editorialized opinion is, yeah, get Stan Smith's or Sambas. Let's don't go with the trendy ones. These are like art fair aisle shoes. These aren't party shoes. These are walking shoes, which obviously we need. What's the the popular party shoe? I mean, tabbies aren't going anywhere. They're even getting stolen off of people's feet this year in New York. Good point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what a statement they make at a party. True. Very true. I agree. Hokas are very much in right now. But I also think on clouds are also really in with collectors. You know, these ones with the zigzag stole, Annie? ONs? Oh, I haven't seen those. I don't know if I know. Oh, yeah. They're like, I believe I should check. Oh, I do know what you're talking about. They have like the chunky heel. And you, yeah, I know exactly. What yeah, you're they've got about. this zigzaggy heel. It looks like a Q kind of, but it's actually an O and an N. People call them on cloud and they are very popular. I notice them a lot around Basel. And I was thinking about how sneakers in general are kind of indicative of like what I also think is in right now, which quiet luxury is very much still in like post succession mm. finale, Kendall Roy sensibility, <laughs> and people are less showing off their like Hermes sandals and more wearing these like casual streetwear sneakers. So I think that's also indicative of sort of people feeling like we're in a bit of an austerity mode right now, maybe, but it's also just generally practical if everyone's chasing all around the world, trying to go to a million things. Yeah, it's interesting because for a while there, there was a convergence of, you know, like sneakerhead culture with art, more of a street art sneakerhead vibe rattling around at the highs of the recent art market. I don't know. You think that's out? Like being stunty with what you wear? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't know. I obviously don't look at people's shoes, so you <laughs> you guys have to tell me. I definitely think it's considered gauche now to be too showy. But then again, I just think about how those red mischief boots <laughs> showed up this year. So there's like the two ways to be. It's like you're either wearing something that makes you guess that you're really rich or makes you know that you're really rich. Incidentally, an artwork I genuinely liked from this year. It's controversial to say, but I love the Mischief Big Red Boots project. The sheer hilarity of taking these meme boots and making it a thing. As far as I'm concerned, that's in. Those are in. Yeah, that's in. (laughs) That's in. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. Emmanuel Periton has a pair. Emmanuel Periton has a pair of the Big Red Boots? Uh Uh-huh. He wore them to an opening 
it was in wet paint one time. <laughs> That's amazing. Picture. That's I have a question yeah. about that. Does he wear them with like pantsuits or jeans? <laughs> he was wearing them with jeans, but you can't really tuck pants into the boots because they're very form fitting. So it was like <laughs> his jeans were kind of like bunched up above them. I think what's smart about the boots is it makes it look like an emoji of boots were dragged onto your body. Like it like doesn't really adhere to the rest of what you're wearing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that they're a real uh, avatar of, yeah, the same, you know, like collapse of the digital into the real that we were talking about just now, you know, that you're always on stage. And that's the moment. That's why I think it's kind of a canny gesture. Being extra, if it's in that way, is still very much in. It's true. If it's like you're extra, like almost to the point of being an artwork, then it's like does a full circle again. (laughs) Yeah. This is kind of an aside, but I was just thinking about this the other day as far as just like street style I've seen. And listeners to this won't be able to see, but I'm like wearing this shirt that is very cottage core. Can confirm Annie is wearing a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think that there's also this trend in wanting to be very traditional. Now that you mention it, I do think that like hyper niche style mongering was a big thing in the 2022 comes out of a TikTok thing, all this like niche style forecasting and like riffing on different things. At least in my world, yeah, quiet luxury has stomped on that. You know, I don't know, maybe people got better things to do or think about. I think, yeah, cottagecore is also to me very indicative of this sort of going rural moment that we all had in like 2020, 2021, where everyone just sort of moved outside of cities or, or revealed that they were already like had second homes outside of cities. So did everyone like come back to New York this year or what was your, is New York out still and Catskill is still in? I think everybody's back. I think that the dust has settled on who's coming back and who is not coming back. As far as I can see, uh, I have completely forgotten about that moment where people <laughs> move upstate. I don't know. Upstate Art Week's still a big thing, but you know, no one's wearing masks on the subway. No one wants to remember, you know, that moment when things bottomed out, emptied out. I don't know what it was like at the art fairs, but it doesn't feel that much different now than pre-pandemic times. It's like reality tried to reassemble itself to heal the psychic wound. That said, though, I do think that it is now a Miami tradition that the New Yorkers that go to Miami come back with COVID. There's like a ton of people right now that have COVID from Miami, which happened last year. And happened the year before. I think a couple <laughs> of our team members included. <laughs> I think so. I think so. All right, Ben, you were going to get into one here out, problematic and in the aesthetic. What's that about? Sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, look, talk of the year. We already kind of got into it. Uh, the problematic show at the Brooklyn Museum, co-curated by Hannah Gadsby. Probably one of the most panned shows of the year. People did not like it. I don't know. The reaction to the show is about something bigger than the show. It was like this perfect object because Hannah Gadsby's contribution to the curating was kind of a bunch of, I would say, not that funny quips, making fun of Picasso for being a misogynist. And it just was a perfect bad object for people who are looking to turn the page on the quote unquote woke moment. You know, I'm saying out problematic here because I don't want to say out wokeness. I mean, there's no way to say that without sounding like a reactionary. And uh, I think that problematic is a nice stand in for the kind of thing that people are frustrated with, which is a kind of debased version of social justice that became pretty commodified. Incidentally, did you know that uh, Hannah Gadsby had a new comedy special this year? 
No. When did it come out? I did not know that. Exactly. Came out. No buzz. It's called uh, something special. You look at it on Rotten Tomatoes. It has no audience score, no reviews of it. So it's not just the art world. I think the moment really turned here. And then what did it turn towards? Unclear, but I think what's in in various forms is what people call the aesthetic term. That's a term from Anastasia Berg, from an essay that I shouted out earlier this year. A lot of people who all have the exact same idea, which is like, what if we treated art like it was art and not like a moral referendum on the people looking at it or making it or buying it? And uh, a lot of people have that exact same idea, like it's a new idea. Well, I guess I would say uh, that the opposition between the political and the aesthetic is eminently deconstructible and you don't have to choose either or. But that's definitely a vibe this year. Is it the vibe in Berlin? Yeah, there was definitely an urge to kind of decouple art and advocacy or something, like however valid or invalid that was, is not my comment, but it feels at least in Berlin right now that art and advocacy are very much like in lockstep right now. Again, like the cultural world is back in that way, in a way that they had been much more present, I would say, like in the Trump years, especially. That's so interesting because I think that in America, it still feels very uncoupled. People are just kind of chapped about how we figured out that art doesn't solve all of the huge political problems that we would like it to. I don't think that that has gone back in America yet. Do you agree with that, Ben? I think that the cool kids are. I mean, I think that the pendulum swung away from biennials towards small galleries and downtown spaces in terms of where the conversation was. Maybe that was just because there were less biennials this year or something, though. But definitely, I think there's this great cynicism about art as an instrument of social change that I think, yeah, is a snapback from some of the sillier directions that art went in its kind of like Pablo Matic moment and the kind of way that the culture industry kind of like drained social justice themes of a lot of their vitality. And, you know, there's a lot of just very um, commodified versions of this vibe that you know, has the negative side effect of just making people think it's all uh, cynical. Um, And that's the moment we're in, yeah? Not to dwell too much on Hannah Gadsby, but it makes me wonder, like, okay, so you mentioned that her own audience kind of dissipated, but I also wonder if the fallout from that show is going to negatively impact the Brooklyn Museum in a long way. I wonder if we could argue that the Brooklyn Museum might be kind of out. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know. People tell me that the show's been packed the whole way through, you know, so. At least among like a certain highbrow, highfalutin art world set. Is the Brooklyn Museum out? Kate, what do you think? You have the view from abroad. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea. I can imagine that all the controversy around that show would make people want to go and see it. So maybe that audience is not just there because they love it, you know? But I have no idea. I didn't go to the show. Obviously, I read a lot about it. And I do know for sure that another museum that is out is the British Museum. They are definitely out this year. Well, they were never really like, they had no grace to fall from, but it was not a good year for them. They're in this checkmate over the Parthenon marbles. Um, They got in big trouble with a translator who they use their work without their permission. And then, of course, in the summer, uh, it came to light that someone inside the museum was stealing from the museum. So it has just been an incredibly bad year for the British Museum, to say nothing of their exhibitions, just like on a structural level. What's in then? I mean, I hate to do outs without in. Is there a museum that's in? Institutions are maybe a bit out. (laughs) Institutions are out. 
post-institutional moment. Interesting. I was thinking that the Met had some very popular programming this year in a Mm. way that I saw a lot of people I know really excited to go see the rehang and go see Manet Degas. And I don't know, maybe that's just, I'm running with a more sophisticated crowd these days, but interesting. It felt like a lot of people were headed uptown in particular this year. Also the Met had the Warren Housie roof installation, Mm. which was wonderful. That was a, a real treat this summer to go to get to see. And I think was really popular for them. So my answer is the Met, firmly. <laughs> Something else that I was thinking about after covering the auctions this year is that single owner sales are decidedly out and private sales are likely in. Private sales meaning that these are artworks changing hands, not publicly. There were a ton of individual collections that were brought to auction this year, and they netted $1.2 billion in 2023, which sounds like a huge number, but it really, if you look at how that all shakes out, it wasn't actually a great year for single owner auctions. For instance, Emily Fisher Landau's collection at Sotheby's, people were really, really looking forward to that sale, but the sale was very bolstered by the Picasso that sold for $136.4 million, And that accounts for a third of the total figure. So when you really look at how much art sold, it's not as much as you would think. Big names sold their collections this year, like Cy Newhouse, Mo Austin, and Emily Fisher Landau as well as the Adam Wendeman sale, the Adam sale. And it's a 54% decrease from 2022. So that's huge. That's more than half. And private sales in? Yeah. Art is changing hands somehow. So I would have <laughs> to think that that's <laughs> where it's happening. That's our best guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not making these deals, <laughs> but I can guess. You're not doing billion dollar deals? Annie would... <laughs> I know. I really need to get on it next year. You got to get on it. Where's that hustle? You know, it's... Uh, we're. <laughs> We're back hustling this year. But it's safe to assume. I mean, if people are going to get turned down in a deal, they'd rather do it privately than publicly. So makes sense on some level. Or sell something secondary for less than they got it for. They'd rather do that mm-hmm. privately mm-hmm. than right on the auction block. People just want to be out of the limelight, right? I mean, I was giving a lecture at Art Law Day and there was someone there complaining about these resale royalty contracts that I think Hauser or Worse puts out. They want to control what someone who buys their artwork does with the art after they buy it and it puts like limitations on what a collector can do with it and uh, in theory sends a little bit back to the gallery and one of the limitations was you know cannot be sold at a public auction for a certain period of years and this art lawyer was complaining he was like well this is so inconsistent like you can't sell it at public auction but you can at private auction you know uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander you got to be consistent and to me it's just obvious they don't care what you do with it behind closed doors they just don't want the data about the sales in public you know everything is getting a little less transparent that was uh, another theme of this year something that's out is i think transparency there's a real attempt to control the information, control the narrative, do things out of sight. Uh, I was reading some of our coverage, uh, you know, the auction houses are publishing less catalogs, so you, it's harder to track. There's less of a paper trail about things that uh, don't uh, sell or didn't actually go to auction after the catalog is published. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more staging. Things are a little bit more theater and a little bit less like improvised as well. Another one I was thinking about, this is also to maybe relate with the market conversation we're just having, um, that undervalued artists are very much in right now. And maybe the counterpoint to that would be like something I wrote earlier this year, like collectives are out. Maybe they're like a stand-in for a certain kind of experimentation. I mean, collectives were never really in, in a market sense, but Post Documenta, which was organized by the collective Ruin Grupa, and it was a collective of collectives. And we had Turner Prizes going to collectives. And 
shortlists and the Turner Prize being accepted by collectives. There was a lot of this kind of sentiment floating around the past few years. And the thing that I'm hearing this year a lot is sort of this idea of the under radar established artists. So like maybe the like median huh. age of artists is sort of getting older and some of the new representations like Hauser and Worth picked up Barbara Chase Rebu this year. The 90 year old Joan Semmel had a big exhibition during I think it was Armory Week at Alexander Gray and Associates. And then Pace just like hoovered up a bunch of estates. Lawrence Wiener's yeah. estate, Ligia Pop's estate, John Wesley's estate. So yeah, I mean, they're like safer bets in some way to work with older artists that have really proven CVs. Um, and of course, estates where there's natural scarcity, so to speak. That was something I, I definitely noticed this year. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, another variation on sort of flight away from politics and uh, jitters in the market, mm-hmm. uh, so on. I like uh, under radar established artist. Uria is another great <laughs> acronym that we can seize. What else you got? Banksy's out. Banksy's out. Who's in? G-Stack guy. Who we is G-Stack, G-Stack guy? guy? You love G-Stack guy. I love Tell him. Tell us about him. He is a TikTok personality who wields white luxury like a sword. <laughs> he goes to a ton of art stuff. I first was familiar with him because Sotheby's like sponsored him to cover their sale in 2022. Right. I, I like, do remember this. What? Yeah, I was pretty flabbergasted. His line is, I don't collect condos. I collect condos, as in George Condo. I mean, he does his own ins and outs. His line is always like, mischief boots a la poubelle. (laughs) Into the garbage. Um, I mean, he's like making fun of like super high-end luxury culture while also just like really relishing it, which I love. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. Well, okay, so I get that. It's like, that is a counterpoint with Banksy, uh, who is, you know, Mr. Cynical, like hates it. Just is going to rub your face in how excessive it is. But Stod Guy is like, you know, just go with it. <laughs> I did see the Stod Guy on a list of kinds of influencers who were in because he was niche. The mega influencer is out and the niche influencer mm. is in. And there is nothing more niche than the art auction world. <laughs> True. And Banksy is basically the most like mainstream artist. So, yeah, that tracks. Yeah, there's some kind of lawsuit where he may be forced to reveal his identity in court, although people are pretty sure it's a guy named Robin Gunningham. But yeah, just Banksy's out in the sense that like uh, Banksy News is not uh, trafficking the way it used to, right? I mean, uh, maybe the Banksy train is... uh, Left the station. Left the station, arrived at the station, is between stations. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, I got another one. Out. Magic, by which I mean the occult. In. Magic, by which I mean illusionists. Magic, wizardry, actual magic, people who have different kinds of beliefs was very in. I feel like still some of that this year. I mean, Annie, who's the astrology? Mickey Pellerano. Mickey Pellerano right here on the Art Angle. The Art Warlock. The Art Warlock that we interviewed this year. So magic is still out there. But I really feel like uh, maybe, you know, things are turning. And what feels fresh is stage magicians, wizards. Our colleague Katie White did a piece about Jeanette Andrews, who is an actual, meaning a magician who is skilled in the craft of sleight of hand and illusion. And she's got kind of an art thing going. And I was reading this article and thinking, you know, this feels cool. This feels like it sits at the border of perception and craft and sort of resonates with that occult vibe, but is something a little bit different. I accept that. That makes sense to me. You heard it here first. Earlier, we were talking about figuration, and I feel like it's not going anywhere, but people feel cynical about it. And then I think 
something else that has that exact same relationship around it is the talk around Times Square. It's not really going anywhere and everybody feels pretty frustrated (laughs) about it. I mean, it's kind of plateaued out. I think that it's sticking around. You said wrong, Ben. You think it's out? No, I said grown. Grown. (laughs) Oh, grown. Yeah, people are groaning. Yeah, definitely. People groan around figuration. People groan around talking about Times Square, but neither of them are going anywhere anytime soon. However, I would like to argue that the new hot neighborhood is the financial district. And I think Ben can back me up on this because we've both been going to (laughs) Dean Kissick's Seaport Talks. Ben spoke in one. And we love Rachel Rossin's Dunkunstala right around the corner. TJ Burns. Well, well, I mean, I think. Look, okay, here's my thing about this. Yes, in terms of the chatter. But look. The Times Square discourse is always like half speculative fiction and half reality. And more than anything else, it's like a placeholder for people wanting there to be a certain kind of scene in New York. And kind of feel the same way about Fideye. People really want to make Fideye happen. I don't know. I mean, all of this just shows you how hard it is to get a thing going in New York right now. That There's like so much hunger to get a thing going. And you have to go all the way to like... The least cool parts of New York, if I die, to find a bar that's uncool enough to be cool. <laughs> true. That's true. But I, I mean, to play devil or to play Fideye's advocate and Times Square's advocate, I think that what was successful about having these two neighborhoods be a meeting place is that you can reliably go and find people that are having a conversation you want to be a part of that you're interested in hearing if you're involved in art or, you know, whatever it is. And I think that Fideye has like taken that. Yeah, people should check out Duncan Stall. It's a great space. It's a crazy, crazy thing about the moment we live in. That this tiny, independent, like artist-run space that is in an abandoned Dunkin' Donuts storefront is doing a show with the estate of Nancy Holt, who's like an amazing, you know, famous land artist from the 1960s. And that's just the moment we're in. This is this kind of mashup moment where the rules are kind of like slightly off. Yeah. The high meets the low all the time. Speaking of regions that are shifting, you've got one here about which cities are cool. Just coming from Miami this year and seeing how sleepy it was and talking to people about why it was sleepier this year. I just think Perry Plu is the exciting, shiny new city that everybody wants to go to. And it might be kind of eating some Mm. of Miami's hype. So I would argue that Paris is in, Miami's out. I would agree with that. Paris is back in, full circle after 100 years. (laughs) Well, look, that seems very uh, reflective of what we were just saying about uh, logos being out and quiet luxury being in. What is the uh, bigger symbol of, you know, gaudy fashionista sceniness than Miami? And what is the bigger symbol of, you know, tasteful chic than Paris? That is so true. I'm glad because I know nothing about fashion. So I'm, <laughs> I appreciate the validation. You nailed that. <laughs> yeah, we accept. Ben, you, were, you used to have your uh, a quick buck is out and litigation's in. What's up with that? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, extension of what we were talking about before about the market. Yeah, I mean, um, not a great year for the flippers for making a fast buck and everybody sued each other. You know, there's just a tidal wave of lawsuits and um, people from all directions coming at each other. Just lots of kind of when the music stops stuff and a lot of dirty laundry being aired. 
we can talk about tons of things. I don't know. One of our big podcasts of the year was about art advisor to the stars, Lisa Schiff, who um, is uh, accused of essentially having built her empire on fraud. And Kenny Schachter, columnist for Artnet, had like a wild story that I couldn't even explain if I tried, but I'll try anyways, about this Italian museum called the Dynamic Art Museum, which is partly based in the metaverse and was buying really big paintings from people on the installment plan and then paying a little, getting into storage, then moving around in storage. So they got control of the artwork away from the original owner before they had paid for it and then like taking out big art loans for it. It's a crazy story. There's a real year of litigation. I think Katya Kazakina had a story about all this where she quoted someone saying like that they can't remember a time when more people were suing each other in the art world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are trying to claw back money too in this difficult economy. So it also makes sense from that perspective. Right, right. Although there's also a thing where there was a lot of money in the flipping period and it's like they're connected, but they're different moments. In a flipping moment, there's a lot of risky money and a lot of those risks don't pay off. You know, a lot of it's speculation and uh, everyone looks like a genius when the market's going up. Okay, maybe last one. Out AI art in opting out of AI. I mean, obviously it was the year of AI in a lot of ways. I mean, people are very alternatively titillated and freaked out by this wave of technology. I was talking to somebody who works in tech does fonts. And they were saying, it's like, yeah, they're just trying to cram AI into everything. I do fonts. They're just trying to like, could it be AI fonts? Obviously, AI is not out in the sense that it's going away. But in terms of what's cool, yeah, I don't think a lot of the images of anime maidens that are being pumped out by Midjourney or Dali is what's cool. There are a lot of artists experimenting with it as um, base for their practice. But it seems to me that a lot of the Artistic energy, you know, what's in uh, is like artists who are looking at ways for artists to rein in or deal with AI and in different kinds of ways. So you got, uh, you know, Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon who've worked with AI for quite a while now and are kind of influencers in that sphere and do artwork that's like generative AI music. But they've really caught fire with Spawning, which is a tool they give to help artists opt out of AI data sets. Or there was another thing that we talked about this year that the University of Chicago put out a service called Nightshade, which helps artists put their images online and treat them in a way that kind of poisons the data sets. If the data is trying to be scraped, it like poisons the image so that if it's added to a data set, it'll make a dog look like a cat if the AI tries to call it as a reference. So definitely artists thinking as much about how to break these things as how to use them or capitalize on them. Yeah. Any kind of uh, remainder of uh, innocence or innocent optimism around ChatGPT and AI has sort of completely disintegrated. And there's a new kind of, of realism about what they're going to mean to creativity. But I agree. It's also a very interesting time because I think a lot of artists are coming up with really cool solutions that will continue into next year, I'm sure. Yeah, so we're back to burnout. We're back to burnout. Uh, you know, uh, back to people uh, burned out, opting out. And we are out of time. <laughs> 
This has been fun. I think we've uh, hopefully not been totally wrong, been a little bit right. And uh, anyway, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you guys today. So uh, happy holidays and happy new year. We'll see what 2024 brings. Oh, happy new year to you, Kate. Right back at you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 